Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Gabby. And I'm Rob. And this is Dark Origins Podcast, a podcast where I tell Rob about the inspirations behind all mediums of art. So movies, TVs, shows, <laughs> books, etc. And sometimes we'll talk about the times that art has inspired life. Yeah. Those are some of my favorites, but I really like the history behind stuff too. So which one is this about? Today, we're going to be talking about one of the inspirations behind the show Yellow Jackets. I love Yellow Jackets. <gasps> I know what this is. Yes, I love I Yellow Jackets. This is. I know what it well. is. What do you think it is? It's about the the soccer team that uh, crashed in the mountains. Close. Rugby team. But oh, yes. Okay. I was close. See, I, I saw this. I think it was made for TV or it was a movie that came out and my parents showed it to us on VHS. I don't know. But it was, I think, one of the first R-rated movies I saw. I, I don't know. Something along those lines. And I was a kid and it, it just stuck out to me. And if you have, it's called Alive. That's what I was going to ask yeah. if it was Alive. Yeah. So it's not me. I think they did stuff for TV, but not this. Alive is not for television. Okay. I, I was totally wrong about that. Okay. So um, that was a good movie and it stuck with me. It's been, you know, 25 years probably. 20. It came out in 93. Okay. Uh, that was 30 years ago. Um, oh yeah. my God. <laughs> Oh, okay. Let's Whatever just, you do, don't edit that out. Let's just move on. You from cannot that. <laughs> edit that out. Um, so yeah, it's uh, Yellow Jackets is so much fun too. I, I just I love Christina Ricci and um, why can't I think of her name? She's been a Juliet great, Juliet Lewis. Lewis. Yeah, she's amazing in that. And then um, Melanie Linsky. Yep, she's great. But uh, that show is is definitely very loosely based on what happened. In the real story. Yes, it is. So Yellow Jackets is based on, or I should say not based on, Yellow Jackets took inspiration from the 1972 Indies plane crash and the yep. Donner Party. Yeah. I th- would say it 
shares a lot more in common with the 1972 Andy's plane crash, which is why I chose to talk about that instead of the Donner Party. Sure. Because I'll just give a brief synopsis of Yellow Jackets since it's still ongoing. Sure. And I'm sure not everyone has seen it. So they should. Yeah, it's an amazing show. You should definitely watch it. It's probably my favorite it's, show that has come out in years. It's a strange it's strange that it's so intense but yet a slow burn at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So it's about a soccer team of a high school soccer team who is going to nationals, I think, and they're flying in a plane and they get in a plane crash in the middle of nowhere basically. They're in like just expansive wilderness and they have to eat the bodies of some of their (laughs) teammates and friends and family in order to survive. But they turn it into almost like a ritualistic type of thing. And I won't go any deeper than that because you don't really know exactly what happens until season two. I mean, still, you don't know exactly what happens, but you don't know about all of the aspects of this like almost right. ritualistic cult like thing that this turns into. Right. So. It's also like very much like Lord of the Flies in a way. It's like it's a it's an amalgamation <laughs> of <No>. many <laughs> but the uh they take a lot of inspiration from a lot of different things to make this happen and they also make it their own. And anything that Gabby just said, for those of you who haven't seen it it's all in the first episode and much more is given away in the first episode than what Gabby has said. And and I, I just want to recommend it. That's all. Yeah. I don't want to give away any spoilers. That's why I don't want to go too far into it. But I think that the synopsis of it being a plane crash full of mostly women, but there are some boys and men, teenage soccer players who end up in this remote area stranded and having to make some really hard decisions <laughs> is enough to have a good idea of What's what it's about. On. Yeah. So the 1972 Andy's plane crash is one of the things that it's inspired by, like I said, and right. that is the story that I'm going to tell you today. So in 1972, the old Christians club rugby union team set up an exhibition match with the old boys club. They had participated and won the year before and had a ton of fun, so the team's captains set it up together. Since it was just an exhibition match, the trip to Chile would be more like a vacation, not so much a stressful game. It was going to be fun. Okay, cool. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I should add. The Old Christians Club Rugby Union team was a club. It was an amateur club in Uruguay. So everyone- Which is is why they went down to Chile to, to play? Yes. Okay. The plan was to charter an old Air Force plane, which was relatively common at the time in Uruguay. It was a turbopop Fairchild FH-227D. Altogether, there would be 45 passengers. 19 of them were the rugby players, 5 of them were the crew, and the rest were family members and friends of the players, except for one woman who was on the way to her daughter's wedding. So she was able to get this cheap seat in this flight to go to her daughter's wedding. The plane left Carrasco International Airport on October 12th, 1972. The weather in the mountains became so bad that they were forced to land in Mendoza, Argentina and stay the night. They were unable to stay in Argentina for more than 24 hours, so they decided to depart at 2.18 p.m. Because if they didn't go, they were going to have to just fly back. It was either go now and kind of risk it with this bad weather or just go home. 
Santiago was located west of Mendoza, but the Fairchild was unable to fly higher than 22,500 feet or 6,900 meters for our non-U.S. listeners. So the pilots decided to fly south from Mendoza to Malargue, I think is how you say it, then turn and fly through Planchon Pass where they could pass over the Andes to fly north to Santiago. I looked up how to say all of the names, but I feel like I am forgetting them already, so I'm trying my best. It's hard. You're doing a a, 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 d- a decent job, I think. Thank you. Well, I wouldn't know. I'm, I'm yeah. sure somebody out there listening does. And yeah, you know, please feel free to to you know send us an email or leave us a comment if you if you think we should correct something. Yes, yes, please do. The pilots on this flight were Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradas and Colonel Dante Hector Lagarara. The former was an experienced Air Force pilot who had flown over the Andes 29 times, but the latter was still training. Julio had Ferradas at the controls in order to help him complete his training. The weather was still pretty bad, so the pilots were not able to actually see where they were going. They were completely relying on their instruments. Which is, that's pretty common though. Yes. um, I had, when I was in college, I had a cognitive psychology class, and I don't know why my professor was so like into flying airplanes. He talked about it a lot. I'm sure it's fun. Yeah. And uh, he always, cause we were talking about um, like the vestibular sacs in our ears and he was using an example of how like they can get thrown off when you're flying. And mm. he was talking about people who got into crashes because they tell you when you're learning how to fly, rely on your instruments because your body is going to get thrown off when you're flying. So you might think that you are going a certain way. If your instruments are telling you differently, don't rely on your body and your brain, rely on your instruments. Okay. Anyways. So yeah, yeah, he talked about that a lot. So that was something that this made me think about that. Sure. After flying through Planchon Pass, the pilots should have expected to reach Curico in 11 minutes, but La Guerrara radioed into ATC or air traffic control just three minutes later, telling them that they had reached Curico and asking permission to descend. Air traffic control cleared him to begin descent. Meanwhile, the passengers on the plane were having tons of fun despite the weather. They were all 19 to 22 years old, or most of them were 19 to 22 years old. So they were acting rowdy, passing a rugby ball back and forth and singing. They continued singing even while experiencing some strong turbulence. They joked about it, not realizing how bad things were about to get. At one point, they dropped hundreds of feet out of the clouds, allowing them to see. This is when they realized how close to the mountain they were. One of them asked out loud, are we supposed to be this close? At this point, the pilots have realized their mistake and they try their hardest to correct it. The pilot tries to pivot the plane up in order to gain altitude so hard that it's nearly vertical. It was stalling and shaking and an alarm begins blaring. They almost clear the mountain, but the right wing clips the mountain at such a force that it rips the back of the plane off, including two of the back rows. They hear the ear-piercing sound of metal on rock, screeching, folding, crumpling. The other wing breaks off when they hit the mountain again. At this point, the fuselage is speeding down the mountain like a bullet before finally coming to a stop. The seats were thrown up against each other and the cockpit was crushed. The elder pilot was killed on impact and the new pilot was in bad shape. 
The fuselage stopped on a glacier, which had no name at the time, but would be named the Glacier of Tears after this event. Wow. That's appropriate. It's sad, but... Yeah. The men on the plane could look behind them and see snow as the plane was basically ripped in half. Like, how scary would that be? You turn around, (laughs) you should see a plane, but instead you see outside. Yeah. At this point, are they... They're still careening or have they stopped on the glacier at this point they've stopped on the glacier but if they would have looked back before when they were careening they would have seen the same thing sure how cute onyx is joining us today he's jumped up on my lap and sitting here yes he is he's comforting when i'm listening to these stories i bet oh by the way onyx is a two-year-old havanese and he has a brother named arthur who's four He's also a Havanese. Yes, we're we're a Havanese household here. Havanese and sugar gliders. Yeah, we have three sugar gliders. But that's enough about that for now. Yeah. Five people pass away in the initial crash as they're ripped out of the plane when it breaks down the middle. Two others fell out of the hole in the fuselage. One of them died from the fall while the other actually survived. What? But he got up dazed and unresponsive to his friends yelling at him to walk towards them, and he accidentally walked off of a cliff and fell to his death. Four passengers in the fuselage died from the force of the impact, ripping their seats out of the plane and tossing them forward. The elder pilot died in the cockpit, like I said, and the younger co-pilot was alive but in terrible shape, like I said. He begged the others to find his pistol and shoot him, but they obviously refused. So 12 passengers died in the crash. The 33 passengers who lived were in varying states of health. As the smell of kerosene filled the air, everyone processed what just happened. One man smoked a cigarette while he repeated the phrase, we're done, we're done, over and over. Another paced back and forth as he said, I am the president of this country. Nothing bad can happen to me. I am the leader of this country. I will be invulnerable. The two medical students on board, Roberto Knessa and Gustavo Zerbino, walked around to assess everyone's injuries. Nando Prado was unrecognizable because of the swelling on his face. He had multiple skull fractures and his head appeared spongy. He was completely unresponsive and they worried he wouldn't make it. His sister was badly injured too and his mom was one of the passengers who died. Enrique Platero's abdomen had been pierced by a piece of metal and when they pulled the metal out, a piece of his intestine came out with it. The fuselage lay tilted downward on the slope with the right side open and exposed. They're surrounded on three sides by 15,000-foot mountains, and the survivors were in a completely foreign land, not just because they were from the coastal country of Uruguay, but because they were 12,000 feet up in a part of the Andes that was inhospitable to life. They were so high up that plants could not grow, so animals obviously didn't live there either. The team captain, Marcelo Perez, immediately stepped up to lead. He organized tasks for everyone to complete in order to survive and to keep up morale. The first night, they crawled into the fuselage to sleep. It was like 20 degrees below Fahrenheit, so they squeezed in tight next to one another, and they placed their feet under the arms of each other to keep warm. The deafening cries of Graziella Augusto Gumilla de Mariani, the passenger who got an extra seat to fly to her daughter's wedding, made it hard to rest. She begs God to take her now. One of the players, Carlito Paez, yells at her to stop. He threatens to send her to God right then and there and this sets off a chain reaction of cries from others, desperate to get out of the situation. They kept Nando, who was still in a coma, at the back of the plane where it was the coldest, to reduce brain swelling and energy needs. 
but one of the men realized that he might not be as bad off as they had originally thought, so they moved him further into the fuselage to keep him from freezing to death. On top of freezing temperatures, the survivors also had to deal with altitude sickness caused by a lack of oxygen circulating to their brain and organs. This caused fatigue and confusion. The altitude also makes the cold feel worse because circulation is poor. Despite the hellish conditions, they remained hopeful that rescue groups would be sent out the next day. Meanwhile, the Chilean Air Search and Rescue Service, or SARS for short, had been notified of the crash. After listening to the radio transmissions, they thought that the plane likely landed in an area of the Andes that would be incredibly hard to get to. But they roped in the Andes Rescue Group of Chile, or CSA for short, and began the effort to find the downed plane. As morning came, five more people had passed from their injuries. At this point, the group sprang into action to do everything possible to survive until help reached them. They needed water and food. They couldn't just eat the snow because it was freezing cold and it would freeze their lips, mouth, and throat if they tried. You can melt the snow though, right? Yes, and they will end up doing that, but they need to find a way to melt it. Right. They drank capfuls of wine while they devised a plan to melt the snow. (laughs) Okay. One of the passengers... Fido Strouch devised ingenious solutions to their problems. He like he helped them figure out multiple different problems and created multiple different like solutions. Yeah. He recovered sheet metal from beneath the seats and placed snow on top of it. He would set it out in the sun with a wine bottle at the at one end so it would drip into the wine bottle as it melted. He also made sunglasses out of wire, a bra strap, and the sun visors in the pilot's cabin. This was incredibly helpful as it kept them from experiencing snow blindness, which occurs when the cornea and conjunctiva basically get sunburned. Yeah, because the sun reflecting off of the snow, right? Yes. like it, it Magnifies. Yeah, it can really, really mess up your eyes. And basically, like, you can't see. You are blind for the time that, you know, you're experiencing it. Yeah, that wouldn't be fun. No. They cleared the fuselage out and used the wool inside to keep warm. They put some of the leftover seats up to fill in the hole in the fuselage to keep the cold air from coming in. Kind of insulate it. Because the back of the plane is missing, right? Yes. They also make use of the seat cushions, using them as snowshoes. Three days after the crash, Nando begins to wake up from his coma. They successfully saved his life by putting him in the back of the fuselage. Ironically enough, the fact that he got no water for three days also helped to save his life. Really? Yeah, because one of the treatments for people with brain swelling is hypertonic saline, which increases the serum sodium levels, and dehydration caused Nando's serum sodium levels to rise naturally. Oh. Yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. The first thing Nando asked about was his mother and sister. The group sadly had to tell him that his mother had passed away and his sister was in bad shape. Nando used all of his strength to crawl over to his sister to try to help her. He stayed with her, keeping her warm, but unfortunately she passed away on the eighth day. At one point in the first week, a plane passes over them. They shout and wave and try their best to get the plane's attention. The plane actually dips one of its wings, which they take as a sign that it sees them, and they celebrate. Roberto opens a new bottle of wine to share with two of the men that he's been tending to, because remember, he's one of the medical students helping all the injured. Right. They drink the whole thing, thinking they won't need a ration anymore. As time passes, it seems clear that help is not coming and that plane didn't see them. Marcelo scolds Roberto for wasting so much wine, and Roberto apologizes profusely. 
Hope continues to drain out of all of them, but Marcelo tries to remain strong as the leader. He tries to reassure everyone that help is going to come. Nando, on the other hand, feels strongly that they need to get help themselves. He thinks that they have to trek the mountain to find civilization. He finds maps in the cockpit and tries to pinpoint where they crashed. With the help of Roberto, Nando concludes that they're trapped on the western side of the Andes and the Chilean foothills. They agree that the fastest way to civilization is traveling west to Chile. He brings the idea to Marcelo, but Marcelo disagrees with the plan. He reminds Nando that he just woke up from a coma and tells him that he would surely die if he tried to hike the mountain himself. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Marcelo does agree that a scouting mission might be a good idea, though, as long as it's undertaken by the men who have suffered the least in the crash. They hope that they might be able to find the tail of the plane at the very least so they can search it for more food and supplies. So Roberto, Fido Strouch, Carlitos, and Numa Turcati agree to go. They use the seat cushions as snowshoes like I mentioned before and head off. But wouldn't the the tail end of the plane be the opposite direction of Chile? Because they're headed towards it. So they'd have to go the other way. And it's likely like two miles or more so the other direction. It's not... Well, to them, I don't think it's clear like which way the back of the plane might have gone. I think they're hoping that if they go up like if they travel up the mountain they might come across it oh right okay also they are not where they think they are oh so it it, a lot of it doesn't really matter yeah because (laughs) the, the reason that they think that they are where they are is because of the fact that the co pilot said that they were in curico and they were not right but that's what the co pilot thought yeah. Right? Because that's why they were coming down, and he was just completely wrong. Yeah. But they don't realize that. They still think that he was right, and they were just too close to the mountain. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. Yep. That all adds <laughs> up, because the co-pilot told them something that he believed, but he was wrong. Yeah. The air continues to get thinner as they travel farther up the mountain, and it takes them much longer than expected to traverse the steep incline. At one point, Fidel falls into a hidden crevasse, but thankfully Numa is able to grab a hold of him to keep him from falling to his death. Like, literally, if he wouldn't have been able to, like, catch himself and have Numa grab him, he would have fallen hundreds of feet to his death. Sure. And it's hidden, obviously. Like, how terrifying is that? You have no idea if your next step, you might be stepping into a hidden crevasse. That's so scary. Oh, that's just, like, snowed over or iced over and then... Yeah. After this it incident, it gives me anxiety just thinking about that. I know, me too. After this incident, they stop and assess their situation. Fido argues that they should keep going despite nearly dying a minute ago, but the others disagree, saying it's far too dangerous. After getting less than halfway up the summit, they decide to go back down to the fuselage. The boys continued to rummage through the debris, looking for food and items they might be able to use. They found toothpaste, which they would pass around so that everyone could eat it as a sort of dessert. And they also tried to make tea from the tobacco they had, but that didn't work either. Tobacco tea? Yeah. Well, I guess you got to try anything you can. Yeah, yeah. Their bodies were eating themselves. They could feel it. They go through the fuselage again, looking for any food they may have missed, but they don't find any. Hoping to find hay in the seats, they rip them open, but they only find foam. They even try eating their leather belts, but they get sick from the chemicals used to treat the leather. Yeah. 
The thought of eating the bodies of their dead loved ones may not have occurred to them at first, but at this point, it's on everyone's mind. One of them breaches the subject and the rest agree that they should ask the team captain Marcelo about it, but Marcelo says no. Earlier in the week, the men had found a transistor radio in the plane. Roy Harley, an engineering student, used electrical cable to fashion an antenna. They had been getting updates on the rescue missions throughout the week via that transistor radio. But it was only incoming, not outgoing. Right, exactly. On the 11th day, they heard the news that the rescue missions had been called off. Oh, God. Yeah. The rescuers believed that all of the passengers must be dead by now. They did not think that there would be any way for them to survive 11 days in the Andes Mountain after a brutal plane crash. Their plan was to wait until spring, when the snow melts, to retrieve the bodies. Any hope that the men had of being rescued drained completely out of them, especially Marcelo, because Marcelo was the one who was really trying to keep everyone calm and keep everyone's morale up, saying they're looking for us, they're going to find us, they're going to keep looking. And after hearing this, he is feeling super hopeless. Uh Everyone aside from Nando began to cry. Gustavo Nikolic tried to, it's either Nikolic or Nikolic, um, tried to keep them from falling into despair by saying it was great news that the search was called off because it meant they were getting out of there themselves. At this point, they know that if they want to live, they will have to eat the bodies. If they're going to rescue themselves, they're going to need nourishment to trek them out in. Many of them are conservative Catholics, so they have a hard time reconciling the idea of eating the bodies of their dead friends. Roberto, who was very religious, had spent a lot of time praying about it, and he ultimately concluded that if God needed them in heaven, they would have died in the crash. So, if they were meant to live, then that meant that they had to do everything in their power to stay alive. And trigger warning for brief talk about suicide. Roberto thought if they chose to deny themselves the nourishment of the bodies surrounding them, then they would be effectively committing suicide, which Roberto believed to be a sin. It seemed clear to Roberto now that they had to eat the bodies. When Roberto and Nando have a conversation with the others, they get mixed responses. Most of the men agree they must eat the bodies. Some of the other Catholics liken it to eating the body of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ, but Marcelo disagrees. He said he believes that God wants them to live, but he doesn't agree that God wants them to eat the bodies of their friends. He argues that God will show them another way. Nando responds, saying their friends are no longer inhabiting their bodies. Their souls left the bodies long ago, and all that is left is an empty carcass. One of the men, Gustavo Zerbino, says that he would want his friends to eat his body if he died. Mm -hmm. He would want his body to help them survive. Most of the men agree, but Liliana Methal, the only woman who is still alive, says she just can't do it. But she tells the men that she would not judge their decision to eat the bodies. So the decision has been made, with the majority agreeing that they will need to consume the bodies of their dead friends in order to survive. Roberto, Fido, and Gustavo take up the task of cutting up the meat. They only had one axe, a screwdriver, and pieces of broken glass from the windshield to cut up the bodies. Nando easily convinced everyone not to eat the bodies of his mother or sister. Um, may I ask? Yeah. Did they have a fire source? They did have matches, or I'm sorry. They did have a lighter, but I don't think that they had any wood or anything like that. To so burn. there's no way to cook the the food, the meat. It doesn't seem like it. I know that they 
would cut out strips of meat and they would lay it on the fuselage to dry, but I don't think that there was any way to cook it. So like they're trying to do like jerky? Basically, yeah. Okay. Roberto was the first one to place a piece of meat in his mouth. He struggled at first, but he was able to do it, and the others followed suit on their own time. Liliana and her husband, Javier Methal, would be the last to eat the corpses, hoping to get back home to their four children. They eventually agreed. Four kids at home. Yeah. They used strips of meat from the backs of the corpses at first, sometimes setting them out on the fuselage to dry, like we just talked about. Yeah. They couldn't stomach anything other than skin, muscle, and fat in the beginning, but eventually they would be forced to eat other organs, including hearts, lungs, and brains. The freezing temperatures pushed the men to plan another scouting mission. Nando wants to leave now, but the others dissuade him from trying, since he's still healing from the crash. Gustavo, Numa, and Daniel Maspons decide to go this time. They gather all of the supplies and food that they will need, knowing that they'll have to make it back before nightfall, and they set off. Some of the men keep watch, but they're forced to go into the fuselage as it gets darker and colder. It's worrying because the plan was for the men to be back by now. Meanwhile, the three men continue their trek up the mountain, stopping periodically to hide behind rocks to keep from falling over from the wind. They would also take turns smacking one another to keep their blood flowing. They don't want the trip to be for naught, so they decide to spend the night on the mountain, praying they'll survive it. When the morning comes, all three are still alive, but they're absolutely soaked. They take their clothes off and lay them on a rock to dry for as long as they can stand it, and then they continue on up the summit. Once they clear it, they realize it was a false summit. What they thought was the top of the mountain was not. Beginning to lose hope, they discuss whether they should just head back, but they ultimately decide to keep going in hopes that they'll find the tail of the plane. After hiking for a while, they come across some debris from the crash and they realize they're getting close. Soon enough, they see a seat from the back row. They turn it over and see a body still strapped in, clearly burnt from the fuel. They stop to say a prayer and look around. They still can't see the tail of the plane and they're coming down to the wire now. If they don't turn back soon, they'll have to spend another night on the mountain and they know it will kill them. As much as they want to continue, they know they have to turn back. The time it takes them to get back down the mountain is a fraction of the time it took to get up it, obviously. Yeah. The whole group feels completely defeated after another failed scouting expedition, especially knowing that what they thought was the peak was actually a false summit. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online, 
and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. On October 29th, their 17th day on the mountain, they cram into the fuselage to sleep like normal. All of a sudden, they feel a vibration and hear a sound from the distance, but it quickly moves closer. Before they know it, they're trapped under snow. Avalanche? Yeah. It fills their mouths, and the weight of it bearing down on their chests make it impossible to breathe. But they're in the fuselage, I thought. Yes, but remember, the fuselage on the right-slash-back side is oh. completely exposed and open. Okay. Like, they, they would cram, you know, stuff there Yeah, to but it's not going to stop an avalanche. Right, right, exactly. It's completely black, and they can't see anything. The men who are able to move begin to furiously dig through the snow to find their friends, focusing on finding their faces first to help them breathe. Eight people die that night. The men who survived the avalanche were trapped in the fuselage. Snow had been packed tightly into the hole and they were forced to squeeze into a tiny space in the very back. They were trapped for two days in there with the bodies of their friends and they were forced to eat the raw meat of the bodies near them. On the third day, it became hard to breathe and they realized they were running out of oxygen. Nando asks Carlito to turn his lighter on so that he can look around to find a tool that will help him dig through the snow. He finds a metal pole and uses it to poke through the snow. It seems like an impossible task at first, but he's able to poke a tunnel through to the outside, restoring their oxygen supply. The next day, they had to find a way out of the plane, though. They knew they couldn't break through the snow that fell into the exposed part of the fuselage, so they began to dig their way out through the cockpit. First, they had to get the cockpit door open as snow was blocking it shut. They took turns shoveling the snow with their hands until they were able to open the door. Then they climbed into the cockpit and over the dead pilots and worked together to push the windshield free. Unfortunately, there was a huge blizzard outside, so they were forced to stay in the fuselage with the dead bodies for one more night. But at least they had a way out now. Yeah. Yeah. The group begins to plan another expedition. Nando, Roberto, Numa, and Antonio Vizentin, nicknamed Tintin, are chosen to go. The group was given the biggest rations of food, the warmest clothes, and they were all relieved of any daily chores in order to prepare for the trip. Also, I should mention that Marcelo passed away in the avalanche. So Marcelo was the leader and now he's gone. So at this point, Nando kind of steps up to be the leader. Sure. And Roberto also kind of does. Yeah, I mean, Nando's kind of been consulting the entire time, right? Like he's been... Offering opinions and solutions and yes, trying yeah. to do things, even though he was one of the more uh, extremely hurt. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They pack everything they will need and discuss the best route. Nando wanted to go west over the mountain, but the others wanted to head east towards a valley that they hoped would twist around the mountain. Ultimately, Nando was outvoted and they chose to go east toward the valley instead of going west over the mountain. They set off towards the valley, but soon the weather turned into an angry storm. They realized they had to go back to the fuselage, and thankfully they made it back just in time before the storm turned into a complete whiteout. Oof. As the group waited out the storm, they realized that Numa's injuries were severely infected. They tried to use cologne to disinfect them, but they continued to swell. Two days after the first trip, they attempt another. Because of Numa's infection, they have to go without him this time. So Nando, Roberto, and Tintin set off. This time they bring a sled with them made by Fido out of a suitcase and a nylon strap. 
just in case anyone gets hurt, they have it if they need to pull them. Sure. They make it just past the spot they did last time, and they see the tail of the plane. Finally, they found the tail of the plane. Luggage lay scattered outside, so they look through it all. They find chocolates, meat patties, one bottle of rum, cigarettes, clothes, comic books, and some medicine. Give me the rum. <laughs> I know that's what that's I. That's all I do. heard out of that whole. I'm like, yep, drunk. Yeah. Rums and or rums, rum and cigarettes. Oh yeah, smokes too, but yeah. only after a few glasses of the rum. Yeah, yeah. They also found extra batteries for the radio. So the good. the extra batteries for the radio is um, for the two-way radio, not the transistor oh. radio. So they're hoping that they can get the two-way radio working. Nando doesn't think they're going to be able to, though, because he thinks it's just completely wrecked from It's also buried under an avalanche. Well, well they got no, some of it out, right? But No, because they got, they got out like through the cockpit. So they can get oh, in. so like part of the... Oh, right. So my, if I'm visualizing this correctly... Part of the po- the cockpit is still exposed. Like you can still kind of see. They they dug their way out through the cockpit and they still okay. have to sleep in the fuselage at night to, right. you know, keep warm so they can get things from in there. Okay, right. That makes sense. Yeah. Roberto and Nando discuss whether they should continue hiking or take the batteries back to the fuselage to try to get the radio to work. Nando thinks they should keep hiking, arguing that the radio is completely broken, but Roberto disagrees. Either way, they have to spend the night in the tail, so they push the decision off until morning. For the night, they hook one of the batteries up to an overhead light and build a fire, and this is the first time that they have any light at night. Right, and and there's a fire. Yeah. So they actually get to be warm for a minute. Yeah, <laughs> and so they stay up late into the night reading comic books. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Any kind of any kind of entertainment at that point. Yeah, just a reprieve from anything. what's been going on. By the time morning comes, the weather is actually somewhat nice. They continue on their way. As nightfall comes, they realize they must start looking for shelter. So just to clarify, they keep going up because that's what they ultimately decided. Nando convinced Roberto that it'd be better to continue on instead of going back with the batteries. Okay. At least at that point. So they're continuing up the mountain. It's obviously a slow trek. And then nightfall comes and they need to find somewhere to stay overnight because they need to, you know, stay warm. Right. They make a little cave out of the snow and lay down holding on to one another as they shiver harder than they've ever shivered before. The temperature drops dramatically and they worry they might actually die that night. So they do survive the night, but they realize that another night like that might likely will kill them. Roberto thinks they should take the batteries back to the fuselage, but Nando still thinks they should keep going. Tintin casts the deciding vote to take the batteries back to the fuselage. Good idea. Yeah, so they head back to the tail to get the batteries. I mean, at least at the tail, if they have to stay there, they can be inside the tail. Right, right. The problem is the batteries are super heavy, especially for men who are starving and freezing. Sure. They try to pull the batteries on the sled, but they're so heavy that the sled just plops deeper into the snow. Wow, it's that heavy. Yeah, yeah. Because you can put a human on it. I on mean, a sled. they hadn't been putting a human on it, so if they did, it probably would have done the same thing. To be okay. honest, yeah. So they're not ginormous batteries, but they're definitely big. Yeah. Roberto suggests they bring the radio to the tail instead, and Nando argues that it will take up so much time and energy to trek back and forth between the tail and the fuselage like that. Sure. 
but with no way to take the batteries back, they were forced to do it Roberto's way. When they returned to the fuselage, everyone looked exhausted and sad. Arturo Noguera and Rafael Echeverin passed away from gangrene within three days of each other while they were gone, so they come back to this. Terrible. Roy, the engineering student, was enlisted to truck to the tail to attach the radio to the batteries. They did this for days with no success. They'd been listening to the transmitter radio while they worked on the two-way radio, and they hear that the Uruguayan Air Force is continuing the search for them. So oh. this gives them a little bit of hope. But So Chile's done, but Uruguay's still in the game. Yes. the There were a f- couple of different groups looking for them before, right. and now... Uh, now there's one. There, yeah. So after hearing that the Uruguayan Air Force is continuing the search for them, they grab a bunch of suitcases and use them to make a giant cross so that rescue groups will be able to spot them from the sky. Nice. Despite feeling like they wasted days trying to get the two-way radio to work, they feel a tinge of hope after hearing the search will be resumed. Nando doesn't share in their hope, though. He believes that they're going to have to rescue themselves if they want to get out of there. On the last trip back, they get caught in a blizzard, and Roy almost gives up completely, just saying, just let me lay down and die. I'm just going to sit down and not move. Yeah. Nando forces him to continue walking until they finally make it back to the fuselage. They know now that they will have to trek west over the mountains if they're going to find help. Some of them are feeling a little hopeful that they might be rescued by the Uruguayan Air Force, but Nando is not one of them. He wants to go now, but Roberto says he needs to stay a little longer to help the sick members of the group. Because at this point, he's the only medical student who is alive. Yeah, he's the only pseudo-doctor that they've got. Yeah. He also says that he's feeling a bit weak himself and wants to regain his strength before they continue on. Nando tells him that he's leaving with or without him on December 12th, five days from the day they have the conversation. In the meantime, the men work together to make a sleeping bag so that the expeditionaries won't freeze on their trek up the mountain. They use insulation from the tail, copper wire, and waterproof fabric to fashion it. Carlitos knows how to sew, so he quilted it all together and then folded it in half and sewed it shut. In a 2020 interview, Carlitos was talking about this and he was super proud of his contribution. I thought it was just really endearing watching it. I would definitely suggest watching it. I think it's called Prisoners of the Snow. So so this is 30 years later, he's giving a recount. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That would be powerful. Yeah. There's a few of them in there in the documentary talking about it. On December 9th, Nando wakes up to Carlitos and the others singing happy birthday to him. Carlitos also saved a cigar for him to celebrate. They weren't just celebrating Nando's birthday, though. They were also celebrating in hopes that Nando would make it off the mountain and save them all. They got a temporary reprieve from their reality. It wouldn't last long, though, because on December 11th, Numa, one of the kindest of the bunch, passed away due to his inability to eat the remains of his friends. Mm. They knew that he wouldn't be the last if they didn't get off this mountain. On the morning of December 12th, Nando, Roberto, and Tintin are set to take off. They layered on clothes and socks and put plastic bags over their feet. One of the sweaters Roberto was wearing was knitted by his girlfriend, who actually ends up becoming his wife. She's also in the documentary, but I just thought that was really sweet. That is really cool. Before they left, Nando pulled out a pair of baby shoes and gave one to Carlito. 
He told him his mom had bought them at the airport for his older sister who was pregnant. He told Carlito to hang it up in the fuselage and he vowed to come back for it to complete the pair which I just thought was really powerful. Since the co-pilot said they were near Curico, they figured it would be a three-day trek over the mountains and towards civilization. They packed three days worth of meat, including a lot of fat, in order to get enough nutrients and energy. Since it was now summer in the southern hemisphere, the snow was beginning to melt. The snowshoes made from seats that had helped them so much in the past were not working as well this time because they sank into the snow, sometimes all the way down to their hips, and their snowshoes became heavy with freezing water. At one point, Nando accidentally slipped, sending a rock plummeting down right towards Roberto's head. That's in the movie. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. And Roberto dodges it at the very last second, barely escaping death, which this made him really just stop for a second and realize that at any moment I could die. That's the first time he thought that in this whole... No, but it was just like, (laughs) you know, it was just... At that moment, he's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're in the fuselage, like, yeah, you know, if you don't do anything, you're going to die. But when you're doing this, any next step or next action that you take could kill you. Or someone else. Or, yeah, or someone else. Or just being in that spot and doing nothing could kill you. At least with the fuselage, they had a little bit of... Shelter. Shelter, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. The whole trip was incredibly dangerous. There was the danger of rockfall on one side and a hanging glacier on the other side that could avalanche at any point, sending ice rocketing toward the men. There were also crevasses that forced the men to walk underneath the hanging glacier. Whoa. Any other time, it'd be just beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Their progress was slow. The first night, they found a small clearing on the ledge of a rock, and they slept there. On the second day, Roberto thought that he saw a road, but Nando wasn't able to see it. They argued about whether they should go towards it or not and ultimately decided to continue on Nando's route. On the third day of the journey, Nando tells Roberto to stay with their things while he and Tintin try to find the peak of the mountain. Once he reached the top of the mountain, he realized that the co-pilot must have been wrong. The Chilean foothills were nowhere near them. He tells Tintin to go get Roberto while he looks for some way out of the Andes because he realizes now we are much deeper in than I thought we were. Yeah. In the distance, he spots two mountains that don't have snow caps like the rest of the mountains, and they have a valley between them. Once Roberto makes his way up there, they talk the plan over. They know that they don't have enough food for three people to traverse such a long route because they're thinking, okay, let's go towards that valley. Right. So they decide to send Tintin back to the fuselage so they have enough food for the two of them, and they're going to make the trip just them two. Okay. Meanwhile, Fido and Gustavo leave the fuselage to look for bodies that had fallen from the plane because the men had eaten all of the bodies near them and they were now starving. They came upon a body, but when they look at it, they realize that it's Fido's cousin, Daniel Shaw. Fido takes a moment to pray, then says they should keep looking for different bodies, and Gustavo agrees. But hope drains from them when they spend hours looking, unable to find any more bodies. Finally, Fido says that they should go back to get Daniel's body. Gustavo asks if he's sure that he wants to do that, and Fido says yes, the group is starving. If Daniel's body can save our lives, then his death wasn't in vain. The others waited at the fuselage listening to the radio, hoping to hear of the expeditionary's rescue. Nando and Roberto begin the descent down the mountain. It's just as dangerous, if not more, than the ascent. Than the ascent. The ascent. (laughs) I'm trying to, to like, put, um, I'm trying to enunciate it so that people know I'm saying than the ascent instead of than the descent. Okay. It's just as dangerous, if not more, than the ascent. 
It's slippery and at times they're forced to jump over open spaces with hundred plus foot drops. I've seen that on like, you know, like when they, when you watch people climbing Mount Everest or K2 or whatever, and they put those ladders down and they walk across the ladder to get over the thing. It's insane. And they have, they have no supplies, no they, supplies. Right. Like those people do that. who do that have hundred thousand dollars worth of supplies. Yeah. Yeah. They, they have no gear. Nando begins sliding down, but his shoes begin falling apart. He knows that without his shoes, he will die on the mountain. Sure. Because you can't walk, you know. Oh, your feet will freeze. Yeah. You can't, yeah. Finally, on the eighth day, they reach a river. Wow. They start following it until they see grass and birds. What a sight. They reach the snow line. Yes. That would be the most beautiful thing you'd ever see. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, they haven't seen grass or birds in 70 days. The next day, they... Wait, it's been 70 days at this point? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay, that's so long. Yeah. I knew it was a long time that they were up there, but 70 days? Yeah, yeah. The next day, they see cattle, so they begin to follow them. As the weather is warmer, their meat begins to go bad, and Roberto gets serious diarrhea from eating it. Uh Uh-oh. They start gathering wood in order to build a fire when Roberto shouts, I saw a man on a horse. Nando runs over and begins shouting to the man. The rushing river made it hard for the man to hear them and for them to hear him. The only thing they were able to hear was the word manana, obviously meaning tomorrow. They set up camp there, hoping it'll be their very last night. And he does. He comes back tomorrow. So they wave him over. The man throws them a rock with a piece of paper for them to write on. Nando writes a note telling the man that they're survivors from the Andes plane crash and throws it back. And there's a picture of this note, so you can read it if you want to. Oh, cool. Yeah. Sergio Catalan was the name of the man, and him and his two sons brought them some bread to keep them fed until they could get rescuers to them. And then he got on his horse and he began the journey to the police station, which is 10 hours away on horseback. So that's what I mean. Like, traveling on horseback, it can take a while, I think. So. Right. It's not like he had like a... Like a side-by-side or something, and he's just flying. Yeah. The police didn't believe him at first. They thought he was drunk, but the letter was evidence that he was not crazy, and he really did find them. Well, he might have been drunk, but that's... He was still telling the truth, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The military guard from a border outpost, police officers, and journalists all show up together. Laura Canessa, Roberto's then-girlfriend, remembers being awoken in the middle of the night and told that Roberto was alive because she never gave up hope. Let's go. The journalist asked the men what they ate to survive, like literally immediately after finding Roberto and Nando, they're asking them these questions. Of course, I mean... Give them a second, though. Like, they're not even... You literally just found them. They they looked terrible. Like, they looked like they were sick. They were like half of... The weight they were before, it was very clear that they were well, not in a good state. You know? Obviously, obviously. I, I just think that the first question on people's minds that know that area would say, like, well, how did you eat? What did you eat? Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So they responded to the journalist question saying they didn't want to talk about that right now because they didn't want the families of the ones who passed to find out via the news. Right. Nando said that he knew his father needed him just as much as he needed his father, and that helped him survive when he was interviewed at this time. And then after that, he immediately inquired about saving his friends. At the fuselage, the others waited next to the transistor radio, and they heard that Nando and Roberto had been rescued, 
and a wave of relief and excitement washed over the group. But then they realized that they should clean up the scene before rescuers arrived because there was blood everywhere. They also combed and shaved, something that hadn't been a priority before. The Chilean Air Force had three Bell UH-1 helicopters ready to help rescue the others. Nando was eager to help get his friends out and even got on a helicopter to act as a guide. He got on a helicopter to fly back into the area. No, I'm sorry. I'm taking a boat home. Like, fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's wild, but. Yeah, but he's a good man. Yeah. Honestly, I say that in jest. I would probably do it. If in that situation, I would try to. Yeah, me too. Help as much as possible, no matter what. Me too. Uh, you know, you want to get your friends out of there. Like, yeah. that's those are that's your teammates. That's why you walked off. Right, exactly. He pointed out where he believed his friends were on a map, and the pilots were in disbelief that they could be there. Like, that they, A, could survive in that area, right. and B, that Nando and Roberto could have walked from that area to where they walked to. Right. On the helicopter flight, the pilots told Nando that they thought he was lost because he was guiding them, and he's like, no, keep going, keep going. But he persisted and told them that he knew where he was going. The weather was bad at the time of the rescue, making it very nerve-wracking, but finally they saw them. They circled wow. over the fuselage while the men watched from below. The initial rescue helicopter couldn't take more than six of the men, so the rest of the men had to stay for one more night. Oh my God. I know. I know. Why is it, What is it with this tomorrow shit? I know. I don't. I <laughs> Like, you're so excited. And then you're like, fuck. I mean, of course you're still excited, but you're like, I'd be I hate one more night. I mean, I think I think that would. Oh. Yeah. Like, well, fuck me. See you guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, just come back tomorrow. I'll be here. Yeah. I don't go anywhere. <laughs> exactly. In a 2020 interview, Carlitos recalls crying for the first time throughout the whole ordeal once the rescue helicopters landed and he was finally free. Landed outside of the mountains. Yes. I imagine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Eduardo was also on the rescue helicopter with Carlitos, and when they got out, Eduardo picked a flower off the ground, and he smelled it, and then he gave Carlitos a flower to smell, and Carlitos just stuck it in his mouth and (laughs) ate it. So then all the men bent down and picked flowers from the ground to smell, and then popping them in, yeah, or picked flowers from the ground to smell, and then they ate them. Right. Get that taste out of my mouth. We've been out of dessert for weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Roberto's father was in a taxi when he heard the news, and he was so happy when he heard it that he started kissing and hugging the driver. Sure. But it wasn't all joyful. Nando had to tell his father that his mom and sister didn't make it, and the families of the others were listening on the radio to hear who had survived. Nando said in an interview that each name was happiness for a family, and each name was less of a chance for another family. Yeah. The rest of the men were rescued the next day. Once they were all back, they had to deal with questions from the media about how they survived and what they ate. They tried to tell the media that they had eaten the food that they brought with them and plants and herbs on the mountain. They wanted to talk to the families in private about what had occurred. They wanted to explain the pact that they had made with each other to eat the bodies of the dead, but they weren't given the chance. Headlines came out immediately calling them cannibals, and the Pope came out after those headlines came out and said that they wouldn't be damned as Jesus Christ gave his disciples the Eucharist. So I think that probably gave them some comfort because a lot of them were Catholic. So they wanted to know, like, what does the Pope think about what we had to do? I don't remember his name, but the guy that, you know, was praying about this, he was like, no, if God wants us to be alive, we have to do the things to stay alive. Yeah. Faith without works is dead. Yeah. So 
if I, you know, if you got something to eat, you yeah. got to eat it. Yeah. And and they told everyone if you were in our position, you would have done the exact same thing. Yeah, dude. Like this is not, you know, uh the power's out and nobody's around for a day or two. Right. You know, like I'm stuck on a mountain. Yeah. And you guys weren't like had no idea where we were. Yeah. They never would have found them. Yeah. Because the people that were that took them, the rescue people were like, "No, you're wrong. You you're turning around." And he's like, no, I'm not. Yeah. Right? Like they never would have made it. Yeah. The bodies of the victims who passed away were buried near the crash site. So they weren't able to like go rescue all of the bodies. Sure. A Chilean priest attended their funeral, but the family members weren't allowed to. I think for like safety reasons, but mm. either way, it just really sucks. The bodies were put into a common grave and a stone altar and orange iron cross marked it. Ricardo... Echeverin or Echeverin was told by a survivor that his son wanted to be buried at home. So he hired guides to go on an expedition to retrieve his son's remains. He was arrested for grave robbing, but a federal judge and local mayor got involved and advocated for his release. He was eventually granted legal permission to bury his son at home. Nice. So that is the story of the crash and their survival. I will list the survivors and the ones who passed away in the description because obviously it's 40 plus people and I don't want to accidentally not pronounce a name correctly or, yeah. you know, yes, I don't yes, want to, yes. that could come across as disrespectful, but I do the want. the last thing we want to do. Yeah, but I do want to you know, be able to make sure that all of the victims, whether they survived or not, are recognized. So I'm going to put them in the description. I'm interested in, in seeing more about the, or seeing the interviews with the survivors, like especially more recent ones, because the, like obviously trauma stays with you, but when it's not so fresh, sometimes it's easier to look back on it and talk about it objectively Yes. And I want to I want to see that like you were talking about with with the quilter. Yeah, they all said a lot of really profound things. It's really impressive to watch their interviews. Not only are they able to recall everything with perfect detail. I mean, obviously, trauma either kind of gets etched into your brain perfectly or right. you it's really foggy. But just the way that they talk about it is so almost like poetic they just are really, really good at talking about how they felt and how they feel about it now. And they ha have really amazing insight sure. into just life in general at this point. And they also, um, there's obviously a lot of stories about this, whether it's documentaries or books, but there are books written by some of the survivors. So I would definitely check those out. Obviously, you'll yeah. get the most information yeah. from those books. That sounds great. Yeah. So I think one of the things that really stuck with me when I was reading and researching um, about the crash and what they had to do to survive was that also is a very clear theme in Yellow Jackets is this idea that these places, these like natural places get to choose your fate, you know, like. But they have some kind of power. 
Yeah. Like they they mentioned, you know, like this mountain could take me at any time or this mountain is it's not letting right. up. It's just one thing after another. And in Yellow Jackets, they they definitely make it more of a oh, supernatural type sure. of presence. But it they Same talk idea, about yeah. it as if the wilderness decides our fate and we have to give back to the wilderness to keep us in its favor. Yeah, it's very like. Like almost pagan view on on the space and where we live and the things around us. Yes, but having power, it kind of seems like the wilderness is a little bit evil, whether or not well, the they show, see it. Yeah. That no, no, no. That's what I mean. I'm talking about the wilderness and yellow jackets. It kind of seems yeah. like the presence of the wilderness and yellow jackets is a little bit evil, whether or not they see that at the time. I'm not totally sure. But it makes them do some kind of well, evil things. Yeah, so let's, let's, let's carry on here. Yeah, but that uh, sounds like there's some really cool um, autobiographies, perhaps biographies that are out there, and some some interviews that you saw. I, I know you watched some some cool stuff on ABC. You watched something on. I think you saw some interviews on YouTube as well, right? Plus all the reading you did. Yes. All right. Well, I'm I'm excited to look a little more into this, and I can't wait to do another episode. Yes, thank you all so much for listening. We really, really appreciate all of you. And I just cannot articulate my gratitude. I know, right? Because I am overwhelmed with gratitude for the support. So thank you all so, so much. I love you all so much. And we will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.